Mexic Clinical Pills. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to our podcast series, Mexic Clinical Pills. It's John and Hal here again, and we'll be finishing off our spiel on rapid sequence induction and intubation. Just to flag with you guys, the things we cover today uh, aren't things you really have to know at a medical student level, and really it's just for interest sake. So last time we talked about why we use RSI and the things to think about when we want to have a modified approach, but something we haven't explicitly talked about so far are all the steps of actually how to perform an RSI. So if that's what you're after, you are in luck today. So I've given a lot of hints toward the process of the RSI, but we can go into more detail right now. There's many steps to it, and at first glance it can be quite daunting to remember, especially in an emergency. Most sources, however, will have the steps outlined as some sort of mnemonic. For this podcast, and also for simplicity's sake, I'll mention the seven Ps, which are plan, prepare, pre-oxygenate, pre-treat, paralyze and induce, placement with proof, and finally, post-intubation management. Alrighty, so how about we start with the first P, which is plan. Some would argue that no plan survives contact with the enemy. However, it is essential that clinicians need to anticipate the need for performing an RSI with their patients, and therefore anticipate how they'll go about performing it. This includes the roles of any assistants, such as people drawing medications, assisting with airways, as well as scribes, and a potential team leader who is not performing the procedure themselves and can therefore view the patient as a whole. You will also need to include a contingency plan for when things don't work out, when that ETT cannot be correctly placed. Alright, so everyone on the team now is aware that you're preparing for an RSI and you've assigned roles. What next? Next comes preparation. This is usually a verbal checklist that all members of the team involved in the RSI go through to ensure that no equipment or medication is forgotten. The one I've heard the most comes as a mnemonic, because medical students love mnemonics. It's a six-letter acronym called SOAPME. The first letter, S, stands for suction, which essentially means that you need some kind of suction device within arm's reach to clear the airway. Next comes O for oxygen. You'll need several oxygen delivery devices at the ready. These may include some kind of device for pre-oxygenation, which will usually be either nasal prongs, a Hudson mask, or a non-rebreather, and also a bag valve mask in the worst case scenario if you're unable to intubate. A for airways, which is the equipment you need for the intubation itself. An appropriately sized endotracheal tube with a stylet inserted, and also an air-filled syringe attached, which is ready to inflate the cuff. You'll also need a working laryngoscope and also supplemental intubation equipment, such as a video laryngoscope, a bougie, and most importantly, a surgical airway kit in case things get hairy. Yeah, and I'll actually go into this in a bit more detail at the end of the podcast. The P stands for pre-oxygenation which essentially means that the oxygen source needs to have a flow rate of 15 litres per minute. And just as a recap, uh, if you remember how actually sort of mentioned this at the very start of the last podcast where he was talking about flooding the lungs with oxygen, and so usually we do this for at least three minutes in an RSI. Monitoring your medications, which is, in, which is basically ensuring that all appropriate monitoring is attached. Your ECG, 
your blood pressure and your oxygen saturation are the most important. You also need all medications required to be drawn up with appropriate doses. So those include your pre-treatment medications, your induction agents, and also your muscle relaxants in that order. Lastly, the E stands for N-tidal carbon dioxide. It's another monitoring measure, and arguably it's the most important. It's the simplest objective measurement of whether the patient is actually breathing, because it's a measurement of the carbon dioxide at the end of an expiration, which can only be present if someone is actually breathing. Yep, it's pretty important. And it's measured on a thing called waveform capnography. And so you'll see this a lot in theatre and in ICU. So next time you're in there, you can ask your friendly anaesthetist or intensivist uh, about how to sort of interpret a waveform capnography if you're keen. While we're on this note, it might be worth naming some of the medications popularly used in RSI. I've separated the medications into pre-treatment, induction and paralytic agents. We'll talk more about these medications when we have our podcast on popular anaesthetic drugs. Firstly, the pre-treatment agents are, as the name implies, the medications given before induction. Because of that, they're not always routinely given in an RSI. Nevertheless, the popular pre-treatment agents include fentanyl, lignocaine, adazolam, and atropine. Atropine is mostly used for children because they get a profound vagal response from the intubation. There's little in the way of recommendation for routine atropine use as pretreatment in the adult population. For induction, there are more options, and here's where things become very complex. I won't go into much detail, but the popular induction agents used for RSI include propofol, which is very popular with anaesthetists due to their familiarity with the drug in day-to-day use. There's also thiopentone, which is often regarded as the classical induction agent for use in RSI. But there's also other anaesthetic drugs, such as ketamine, etomidate, midazolam, and fentanyl. Midaz and fent are also used in pretreatment, but they can also be used to induce. Finally, the medications used for paralysis include succimethonium, vecaronium, and rocaronium. Yeah, and if you're not too familiar with these agents or these classes, uh, just know that induction agents are used to render someone unconscious, and the paralytic agents are used to relax someone's muscles. So this includes the muscles of uh, respiration as well as, in particular, the vocal cords. And so that's why both of these are necessary in RSI. So if you think about it, If someone only had a paralytic agent without any induction, then they might actually be awake uh, during the procedure, and and they might also feel pain. And so it's a highly uh, psychologically traumatic experience, and they can also have a physiological stress response. So they can be tachycardic, uh, and they have a raised blood pressure. They can even have increased uh, intracranial pressure. And so it's really not ideal. However, if we were to only sedate someone and not give them a paralytic agent, that's also not ideal. And there's been studies that have shown that there's increased adverse events uh, because of this approach. Uh, And so you really need both of these together to ensure a safe and effective RSI. Uh, And as Hal said before, 
the pretreatment agents, they're not as necessary, and it's really used in select patient groups. So we have our plan, we have our people, and we have all the monitoring, meds, and equipment ready to go. Let's get started and begin the pre-oxygenation process. Crank that flow rate up to 15 litres, get the Hudson mask, non-rebreather, or nasal prongs on the patient, and watch as their end tidal oxygen levels creep upwards. Now is also a good time to give pre-treatment agents if you have any. When the end tidal oxygen is upwards of 90%, the induction and paralytic agents can be administered. So the patient is induced, they've lost all muscle tone from the relaxant. Tilt their head into the sniffing position, open their mouth, insert the laryngoscope and lift. At the same time, your assistant can apply cricoid pressure. You should hopefully see their vocal cords enough to insert the endotracheal tube, but we're not done yet. We need to make sure that it is indeed in the right position. And there are several ways to confirm this. You may have seen the ETT go between the cords. The end tidal CO2 monitor might be detecting breaths. Remember how I said it's important to monitor this. Examination of the patient's chest. You might see equal chest rise and fall or you may hear breath sounds bilaterally. Lastly, you might also notice fogging or water vapor within the tube itself. If you have some or all of the above, then great. It's a sign that the tube is in the correct position. If not, you'll need to reposition the ETT and re-examine before you can comfortably ask for the cuff to be inflated. Under post-intubation management, the tube is to be secured to the patient the head of the bed can be raised, if possible, and the patient is monitored. In this time, we can also give analgesia or also maintain the patient's anesthesia, arrange for an ABG to be done, or get a chest x-ray to confirm that the ETT is in the right location. There's a lot of other nitty-gritty stuff to check post-intubation, but it's not too necessary for us to have a great deal of understanding. What is important to emphasise is that all of this is in a perfect world scenario. Things don't always work out in the way we wanted. Sometimes you don't have time to adequately pre-oxygenate. Sometimes you don't have time to wait for the patient to be fully induced. Sometimes you don't even have time to give the anesthetic and you must perform the intubation while the patient is conscious. Sometimes in the worst case scenario, you can't get the tube in. And now we're in trouble. So John, what happens if we attempt an RSI but are unable to intubate the patient? Mm, this is a bad territory to be in. <laughs> this is when we start to think about what's called difficult airway algorithms. I'll cover it very simply, but if you do want more detail, uh, you can have a look online at the Vortex approach. It's an Australian-based guideline, uh, and other countries have different guidelines as well. Like in the UK, they use the difficult airway society guidelines, but I think the vortex approach is actually a really nice way of understanding it. Whichever approach you use, uh, the markers that you want to look at are the number one, N-tidal carbon dioxide on the capnography trace, uh, and number two, the SpO2. Uh, so you want to ensure that the patient has an SpO2 of 94% or above. So if they're not getting good N-tidal carbon dioxide readings, or um, if they're hypoxic, then that's when you start to think about these difficult airway algorithms. So there's generally four uh, different 
kinds of techniques of rescuing a failed airway. So number one, you can continue to try intubation. Number two, you use a face mask. Number three, you use a supraglottic airway device like an LMA. Or number four, you use surgical airway techniques like cricothyroidotomy. Uh, you generally get up to three attempts of each technique and between attempts, you want to change something that you're doing. So for example, if you want to try intubation again, you want to maybe manipulate the head or manipulate the uh, cricoid for a better view with a laryngoscope or change the actual laryngoscope used. So you can change it to a video laryngoscope or if anesthetics are involved, you can use a fiber optic laryngoscope, which is kind of like a bronchoscope and you can look down where you're going. Uh, and so these are you know, just examples of things that you might do in order to try to optimize the technique. And then you can also use adjuncts, like I talked about before with the oropharyngeal airway or the nasopharyngeal airway. This essentially prevents the tongue from covering the epiglottis. And then other adjuncts include things like a bougie, which is like an introducer that goes in first, and then you slot in your um, ETT after that. So these are different um, things that you can consider. And the factors that sort of affect the ease or difficulty of each of these different airway techniques are slightly different. But uh, in general, the main stepwise management you'll see is uh, laryngoscopy, face mask, supraglottic airway device, and then surgical airway technique is last line. So when we get to that stage, we typically call this stage can't intubate, can't ventilate. So how you actually perform a cricothyroidotomy is that you want to try and first feel for the cricothyroid membrane. So you can feel it on yourself, hopefully, um, where you feel your thyroid cartilage and it's right below that and there should be like a little divot almost. Uh, so you want to get a scalpel and make a transverse incision over the cartilage then rotate your scalpel 90 degrees, then insert an, uh, a bougie or an introducer, followed by an ETT into the trachea. Now, if you're unable to feel a cricothyroid membrane in a patient, for example, they uh, are very obese, then you'll need to actually make a large vertical incision over the area and just blunt dissect down with your fingers until you can get down to the cricothyroid membrane. Uh, so you always need to be on high alert for the can't intubate, can't ventilate situation because you need to do a cricothyroidotomy ASAP. Remember your four H's and four T's of cardiac arrest? Well, one of the H's is hypoxia. So if you wait too long to do this, the patient runs the risk of having a hypoxic cardiac arrest. Now, as a junior doctor, uh, I don't think we should be expected to actually perform these procedures. Uh, even RSI itself it should be done by someone who really knows what they're doing. Um, but you may see this, uh, so it's good to know about. And there's also heaps of debate that goes on in regards to the actual medications you use in certain scenarios and you know, debate about various techniques you should use as well, like whether or not cricoid pressure is actually necessary. But, you know, these are all extraneous things. We've essentially just tried to go through the core principles of RSI over these last two podcasts. 
because we think that in general it's quite an important procedure to know about in emergency and crit care medicine. Now, just to put things also into a little bit of perspective because of the whole COVID-19 situation, uh, you may have heard about how patients with COVID uh, deteriorate, uh, can deteriorate quite quickly uh, and go into respiratory failure in which they require ventilation. Uh, and so a lot of the time we'll actually do RSI on them because essentially we want to try and minimize needing to do a bag valve mask on them since this is actually quite a high risk step due to the potential aerosolization of the viral particles. Uh, but if you do need to bag valve mask them because of failed intubation or desaturation, then you need to make sure that the mask is really tightly sealed on the patient's face. Another potential area of aerosolization is during extubation of the patient uh, because the patient might cough in this process. Uh, and so when extubating, some anesthetists might actually consider using adjuncts. Uh, in this podcast, we group this under pretreatment agents. But things like lignocaine or uh, remifentanil, uh, these things can uh, suppress the cough reflex. Uh, but, you know, this is pretty in-depth stuff that uh, is way out of my comfort zone at least. Uh, so if you've actually made it this far in our podcast on RSI, uh, thank you so much. We do appreciate it. Um, you must be a little bit of a nerd. <laughs> or, you know, you just chucked it on in the car and uh, it was too late to skip this podcast. But anyway, um, just to let you know, we'll be having many more podcasts coming through. So uh, please do give us any suggestions of what you'd like to hear. Obviously, this was uh, pretty uh, beyond what should be required of a student or I think even of a junior doctor. Uh, but isn't it interesting to learn about? Hey, in any case, stay safe and keep learning.